This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. There are some days we don't do any of these days in histories, and there are others we are compelled to do too. And today, well, that's one of those, this is one of those days. And in this hour, who is Pete Maravich, a.k.a. Pistol Pete? Well, some of you know, and I know then you can't wait to hear the rest of this. But for those of you who are basketball fans and don't know him, and those of you who don't like basketball at all and don't like sports, well, this is still a great story. And so let us begin with this simple question that I just asked. Who is Pistol Pete? Excitement, enthusiasm, greatness. That was Pete Maravich. He was unstoppable. It was as if you had melted down all 12 Harlem Globetrotters and then filled up this skinny 6'6 white frame with everything they had. Everything just stopped. It was like, wait a second. Did he just do what I think he did? You were never quite sure what he was going to do with the ball in the open court because he had a thousand moves to either shoot it or pass it. Give him that much room and he'll burn you. He faked with his right hand like he was going to the player on his left and he just whiffed it and then he hit it, tipped it with his left hand to the player on his right. He went in for a layup and the officials caught traveling. And Pete went crazy. He went to the official and said, you can't call that. You've never seen that move before. Nobody handled the ball better than Pistol. But he wasn't just satisfied with that. He had to put a little show on for the fans. I asked him once if he'd ever played a perfect game. He said, no, but I'm going to. So some night I'm going to take 40 shots and I'm going to make them all. He was an entertainer at heart. And his ability to pass the ball and dribble the ball and do outlandish things on the court, which sometimes even overruled the game, that was Pete Maravich. And Pete Maravich was born on June 22, 1947, in a small steel town in western Pennsylvania. His father, Press Maravich, was a local basketball hero himself who logged a short career as a pro. Press's skills became the foundation of his son's greatness. When I was seven years old, my dad sat me down and he said, Pete, if you'll listen to me, you might be able to get a scholarship in basketball because we can't pay your way. And maybe you not only get a scholarship, but maybe you'll go to the pro level and you'll play on a team that wins a world championship and you'll make a million dollars playing basketball and they'll give you a big diamond ring and they'll have your name on it and say world champions. And to a seven-year-old, my eyes lit up. And I said, Dad, that's what I want. He said, if you let me teach you, you just commit. You dedicate your life to basketball and that's all you have to do. And you'll live happily the rest of your life. And that's what I did. I became a human basketball. I was a basketball android. And that he was. There's always those great clips of seeing Pistol Pete walking down the street, twicking that basketball on his finger. And you knew he slept with the ball. He was the ball. Pete's father knew exactly how to pull his son's heartstrings. Let's take a listen. Pete would come on the court in the backyard and say, let me shoot, give me the ball. And Press would say, no, go back in the house, you're too small. And Press said on one occasion he'd left the ball on the court and went back in the house and looked back through the kitchen window and he saw that Pete had slipped onto the court, picked up the ball and started shooting. And Press said, I knew at that moment I had him. 
It was like his dad was dangling something out in front of him and would intrigue him and Pete would get interested in it and then his dad would take another step and then another step until he was hooked and he was obsessed by the game of basketball. When he was 12 years old, he opened the window to his room, jumped out of the window and spent the night in the woods cuddling a basketball. When Press was at the wheel of the car, Pete would sit in the back seat by the window, put the window down, and as Press drove slowly, Pete would dribble the ball. Now, I mean, that's an eerie connection with basketball. You bet. And according to NBA.com, when Pete was only 11, get this, he made 500 consecutive free throws one evening after school. Try that. Just give it a shot. See how long it takes you to make 500 straight. Like, mm, forever. And he stopped only when it became too dark to see the rim that was illuminated only by his father's flashlight. In 1956, the Maravich family moved to South Carolina, where Press would coach Clemson's basketball team. While Press built a reputation in the ACC, Pete was building one of his own, playing on the high school varsity team as a 12-year-old. In 1959, he threw a pass between his legs, and the crowd went berserk. It was a small crowd, but they went nuts. And at that time, something clicked in him, very much like any entertainer. When practice was over at high school, he would stay another hour or two, just ball handling and shooting hook shots from half court, stuff like that. He was about five foot, weighed about 80 pounds when he was in the eighth grade. He used to sit out there from 20, 25 feet, shoot from the hip. That's when he got that pistol name. Pete was always the last one to leave the court, and when Press would be there to pick him up, he would say, well, come on, Pete, and Pete would always put him off. Uh, Dad, I've got a little bit more to work on. You know, I've got something else I need to do, and Press would look at me and he'd say, how about that kid? When I knew him in high school, he was this jittery, jerky kind of a guy, the kind of guy that, a, you know, probably some psychologist today would have him on Ritalin. You know, he, he was probably just too jerky. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't sit still. Trying to be friendly to Pete was kind of hard because he would he would start looking down and moping around. He wouldn't really care, in particular, if there were girls involved. <laughs> and after high school, Press Maravich presented he and his son as a package deal to the college would put, that would put forth the best officer, offer. Press chose LSU, fulfilling his dream of coaching his son. I can remember the first day I saw Press Maravich at a press conference at LSU. The first one he had as a coach. And before he got halfway through, he said, boy, there's going to be a guy next year at LSU is going to be the greatest basketball player in the world, my son Pete. Now, as you can imagine, if you know anything about the SEC, selling basketball in a place like LSU, well, that's just funny. I mean, football in Death Valley in that stadium That's religion itself, practically, as close as one can get. When we come back, how Press and Pete turn LSU into a basketball powerhouse and put LSU on the map for hoops, not football. More on this day in history, celebrating the life of Pistol Pete Maravich. You won't believe the rest of this story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this day in history, Pistol Pete Maravich was born in 1947. And as one of the commentators had said early on in last segment, Pistol Pete Maravich was all of the Harlem Globetrotters wrapped into one human being. And it's true. Well, back to the story. It was an almost impossible feat back then, as I had indicated, to sell basketball in a place like Louisiana and LSU. But with Pete, anything was possible. It wasn't until Pete showed up on campus and started playing that, I mean, it was like the word spread like wildfire, that here was a bona fide superstar. And it'd be five, 6,000 people would show up for the freshman game just to see him. And then they'd have the varsity game, and it would be like six, 700. <laughs> and that was Jim Carville, by the way. You know him from his political commentary. He was also an LSU alum. After averaging 44 points on a freshman team that lost just once, and again, I said 44 points, that was his average day, Pete joined his father on the varsity team in 1967, where he dominated the league and filled stadiums with enamored fans. But receiving his father's approval was what Pistol Pete craved most of all. Those of us that were close to press could tell how proud he was of Pete. And behind Pete's back, he would just say glorious things about Pete. He would never tell Pete that he was that great. Part of what Pete was searching for was his father's approval, and I don't think he got it very often. And it's interesting, withholding some of that approval and love made him strive more. And I'm not saying that's what we should do as parents all the time, but sometimes perhaps we shower our kids with a little too much praise. And finding that right balance, I think that's what we all struggle with. While Pete and his father interacted on the basketball court, his mother, Helen, well, she struggled with the crowds and rarely went out in public. The sad thing about that was when she was in public, she was just absolutely marvelous. A wonderful lady, but she just, I think, crawled within herself. His uh, mother was an alcoholic. I don't think uh, anybody identified that problem at the time. Nobody talked about that problem at the time. But uh, you could put things together. You could. And Pete himself, well, he struggled with alcohol as well. You would wake up in the morning to go to class and go out there and see how did he get his car in this spot. You could almost sense and feel him hitting the front bumper and then backing up to the back bumper and front bumper and back bumper until he gets in. He drank a lot when he was in college was the reports we were getting, a couple of wrecks. And, of course, you know, his daddy wasn't going to kick him off the team, but he might bat him around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people laugh about that quite as much, but that was, those were the days. That's what happened, and that was pretty routine. However hard Pistol Pete played off the court, he never let up once the whistle blew, averaging 44 points in his sophomore and junior years. But scoring was only part of Pistol Pete's arsenal. We felt like his ball handling and his assist abilities overshadowed his scoring abilities. And that sounds crazy when a guy averages 40-some points a game. So we made the decision that we were going to play him straight up and guard the heck out of the rest of the people. Coach Rupp didn't think that Pete could beat us all by himself, and so we would play him one-on-one. The six games that we played against each other uh, in college, I think Pete averaged over 50 points a game. But we won all six games, so Coach Rupp was right. Coach Rupp, by the way, of the powerhouse Kentucky squads. And imagine that, 50 points a game against one of the great college basketball teams of all time. In late January of 1970 against Ole Miss, and we broadcast 
from Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss. It's just about an hour south of Memphis. The pistol passed Oscar Robertson's NCAA scoring record. That senior year, he also broke his own season record by averaging 44.5 points a game. He finished his college career with an NCAA record 3,667 points in only three seasons. Because again, back then, NCAA rules at the time prohibited first-year students from playing at the varsity level. To this day, he still holds 11 NCAA records, including the all-time leading NCAA scorer with career averages of 44.2 points per game over a three-year career. That's just crazy. All of his accomplishments were achieved before the three-point line shot and the shot clock were introduced to the NCAA basketball system. And despite being unable to play varsity again as a freshman under NCAA rules. So just imagine what he could have accomplished. Let's take a listen. Well, what I do every year in my first notes column of the year is, is I just remind people of what Pete Maravich did, that he averaged 44 points a game for three seasons. And I don't think people understand what that number is, and, and that's a number that will never be approached ever again in college basketball. I think without a doubt he was the greatest offensive player ever to play the game. If you want to break his record, that was with no three-point shot. All you have to do is score 15 three-pointers every game you play your entire college career, and you'll break Pistol's record. No one's ever going to do it. As college's all-time scoring champion, though, Marriage would face Maravich would face a new challenge, and a new challenge in the National Basketball Association. We are most happy to announce that Pete Maravich will play professional basketball for the Atlanta Hawks. As the third pick in the 1970 NBA draft, the Atlanta Hawks made NBA history by presenting the richest contract ever offered to a college player at five years for $1.9 million. But not everyone was happy with that deal. Here's a white kid who hasn't played a day as a pro, making more than triple the salary of anyone else on that team. And it caused some dissent. You think? Yeah, the vets probably weren't too happy. Despite his national following at a 24-point average, Maravich wasn't adding wins. The Hawks never won a playoff round in his four seasons there. The Hawks' GM at the time was Pat Williams, and he was approached by head coach Cotton Fitzsimmons about Maravich's game, his drinking, and his temperament. Here's Pat. Cotton came to me at that point and said, you know, we got to start thinking about making a a move here. Well, I started doing that very quietly, and, uh, you know, it was very, very interesting. There was no interest. There was no interest. Maravich was eventually picked up by the expansion team, the New Orleans Jazz. Pete was finally going home. Here again is Pat Williams. Pete then says, um, what did you get for me? And I told him, trying not to be too elated, but I reeled off the picks we were going to get, laid the whole package, and there was a little pause, and Pete said, is that all? Is that all? And then in 1974, Helen Maravich was pronounced dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. She was 49. Here's Pete's friend, Calvin Murphy. I saw a difference after his mother passed away. I saw a difference in Pistol. I saw a, a serene, almost kind of a lost individual. It was all the pressure that was placed upon him that wanted to chase him away from the game. He didn't know if it was worth it anymore. 
And Calvin Murphy himself was a heck of a ball player for the Houston Rockets. Maravich averaged 21 points and 16 assists in his first season with the Jazz. It was the first season he made All-Pro. He averaged 33 points in 1977, and the pistol could still deliver showtime performances. Both guns were blazing on February 25th, 1977, against the New York Knicks. He just went off that night. It was the most amazing thing I'll ever remember seeing as a player. Pistol fire! Sixty-eight from Arovich. That game is bettered by six other players only in NBA history. Battling a bad knee, Arovich was waived and picked up by the Boston Celtics, where he finished his career in 1980. That final year would be the rookie season for his fellow Celtic teammate, Larry Bird. Unfortunately for Arovich, his last year would be the first year the three-point line was instituted, a line from which he shot 66 Maravich was 33, and the next couple of years without his passion, the fame, and his identity, it would be sheer torture. According to Pete, these were the darkest two years of his life. He basically holed up in the house. He was incredibly depressed, and he spoke about it as if he was a drug addict going through withdrawals. And the withdrawal was the attention and the love that he had for basketball. But Pete Maravich was about to be released from his demons. How he gained his freedom surprised all who knew him. In 1982, the depressed and lost son of a basketball father found someone else to believe in. Pete Maravich believes that God spoke to him audibly. And he said that from that day on for the rest of his life. And I was getting ready to go off my bed, and God spoke to me. He spoke to me audibly. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. It reverberated through my room. I'll never forget it as long as I live, just like I'm speaking in this microphone. He was not in my sphere. He was outside. He had not come in yet. And that's the voice of Pistol Pete Maravich, and he had found Christ. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Pistol Pete, born this day in history. And if you ever catch the 30-30 that ESPN did on him, just the video alone will just make you laugh. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the life of Pistol Pete Maravich, celebrated here on Our American Stories. I wanted to go back to that last clip. There was more to it we had to cut out because we were heading towards a break. But, you know, as we had said, Maravich was about to be released from his demons, and he gained his freedom, well, from a surprise place. No one expected it. Let's return to that clip and take a listen. Pete Maravich believes that God spoke to him audibly. And he said that from that day on for the rest of his life. And I was getting ready to go off my bed, and God spoke to me. He spoke to me audibly. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. It reverberated through my room. I'll never forget it as long as I live, just like I'm speaking in this microphone. He was not in my sphere. He was outside. He had not come in yet. God spoke to us personally. 
And a lot of people can't understand that. I don't understand it, but he spoke to us audibly. I'm saying, come on, Pete. And he says, oh, I promise you, Bob, I was woken by a sound. It was the Lord speaking to me. And at that time, he dedicated his life to the Lord. He found that, and he was more devoted to that than anything I've ever seen, basketball included. Once he became a Christian, he would read his Bible hours at a time, every day. He would go up and talk with anybody then, where before he thought everybody was coming to talk to him all the time. And he was always trying to convert somebody to Christianity. Pete helped guide his own father to Jesus, who died of cancer in 1987. Here is Pete reflecting on his father just after he died. My dad was really my hero. I mean, he influenced me so greatly in my life, and uh, he influenced me until the day he died. Uh, We were very, very, very close, and uh, I think that's good. I think a father and son should be that close. I think uh, the heroes today should be the fathers. They should not be some uh, athlete. You can admire athletes. You can admire rock stars. You can admire people, but it should be the fathers Mm. that are the heroes of kids today. I think most kids, most kids like to be like their fathers. And then nine nine months later, Pete himself would follow his father. On January 5th, 1988, Pete was scheduled to be interviewed with Dr. James Dobson on his Christian radio program, Focus on the Family. While playing pickup basketball at the church's gym in Pasadena, California, something terrible happened. Here's Dr. Dobson and his colleagues who were witnesses that day. I knew that he had really come through a difficult time in his life and uh, there'd been a dramatic change in his life when he met Jesus Christ and uh, I really wanted to hear him tell that story but I had not met him until that uh, morning at 7 o'clock when we uh, met at the gym to play basketball. I think he was going about half speed but there was a move or two that he made that took our breath away. We played uh, about three games, and, uh, and at that time, uh, some of the guys went to get a drink of water, some went outside to get some fresh air, and before I knew it, it was just Dr. Dobson and Pete on the court, and I was underneath the basket rebounding for Pete as the two of them talked. He said, you know, I've loved being here today. He said, I, I've really got to get back into basketball, even if it's pickup stuff like this. And I said, uh, how do you feel today? And I promise you his last words to me were, I feel great. I just feel great. And I turned to walk away, and I don't know why, but I looked back at him for some reason, just in time to see him fall. And he fell hard. He didn't break his fall. I mean, his face hit the boards. I walked over very carefully along with Dr. Dobson, thinking that Pete was going to jump in our faces. But as soon as we got close, we could see his eyes rolling back and the color in his face starting to change. And then I saw that he was in a seizure, and I got down over him, and uh, I held his tongue and kept his air passage open for about 20 seconds. And then he just, he just writhed once like that. His body moved once, and it was gone. The man died in my arms. Maravich was 40. He left behind his wife, Jackie, and their two sons, Joshua and Jason. In 1996, Maravich was named one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. While Joshua and Jason were there representing their father, Magic Johnson approached Maravich's two sons and confessed that he borrowed the term Showtime from Maravich and said that, quote, he was the real Showtime. 
Here's NBA Hall of Famer Elvin Hayes, followed by Pistol's brother, Ronnie. Most artists, when they are living, people don't recognize them and recognize their great talent until after they're gone. And I think this is what really happened to beat Maravich. It seems like to me everybody wants to dwell on the sad times or depressed times. He had a good life. He had a great life. He did what he wanted. He played basketball. That was his love. And he ended up with his second love, his wife. And then he had his kids. And then he found Jesus. I think he died a happy person. If he was alive today, he would probably be walking down Bourbon Street handing out leaflets for Jesus. He got one person out of a thousand. He'd be happy. Yep, that sounds like Pistol. He was a great, he was like a great singer with a style all his own, a pacing that was different, a flair for the unusual said Los Angeles Lakers legendary announcer Chick Hearn. NBA great Paul Westfall said this. He was an artist. His canvas was the court, and his brush was the basketball. And NBA legend Elgin Baylor declared, quote, Jerry West was the best I ever played with, and Pete is the best I've ever seen. Here's another NBA legend, Bill Walton, reflecting on the pistol and the no three-point line while he was in college. Amazing about Pete, 44 points per game, career, for three straight years in an era with no three-point line. Dale Brown, who coached at LSU after Press and Pete were there, Dale Brown went back and charted all the games with the, with the running score. You know, Maravich free throw, Maravich 22-foot jumper, Maravich layup. And he calculated that with the current college three-point rule at 19-9, Pete Maravich would have averaged... 13 three-point makes per game, which would have given him a career average of 57 points per game under today's rules. That guy is unbelievable. We love him. We miss him terribly. What a great friend. What a great human being. The late Pete Maravich. In his 2005 memoir, Chronicles, Volume 1, Bob Dylan wrote this about Pete Maravich. Quote, and imagine this, Bob Dylan writing about Pistol Pete. I started and completed the song Dignity, the same day I'd heard sad news about Pistol Pete. I'd seen him play in New Orleans once. He was something to see. Mop of brown hair, floppy socks, the holy terror of the basketball world. High-flying, magician of the court. The night I saw him, he dribbled the ball with his head, scored a behind-the-back no-look basket, dribbled the length of the court, threw the ball up off the glass, and caught his own pass. He was fantastic. Scored something like 38 points. He could have played blind. Pistol Pete hadn't played professionally for a while, and he was thought of as forgotten. I hadn't forgotten about him, though. Some people seem to fade away, but then when they are truly gone, it's like they didn't fade away at all. And we're going to leave you with that song from Bob Dylan. Fat man looking in his blade of steel man looking at his last meal Hollow man looking in a cotton field For dignity Wise man looking in a blade of grass Young man looking in a shadow that pass Poor man looking through painted glass For dignity Somebody got murdered on New Year's Eve 
Somebody said dignity was the first to leave I went into the city Went into the town Went to the land of the midnight sun Searching high Searching low Searching everywhere I know Asking the cops wherever I go Have you Blind man breaking out of a trance Puts his both hands in the pockets of chance Hoping to find one circumstance of dignity This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, and we also love to tell your stories when you send them to us, and we promise we'll do that. That's why it's called Our American Stories, because it's you and us making this show together. And this next one comes from a listener named Troy Skinner, who sent in a recording of this powerful testimony that he gave at his local church. My son Tyler was born very sick. One of my earliest memories following his birth is his breathing. His entire body convulsed so violently in and out that his ribcage practically touched his spinal column. I wouldn't have believed it was possible for a human body to do that if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. He was struggling to force down every breath and he was failing in the struggle because his lungs weren't able to do their job yet. I thought for sure He would die within minutes. He didn't. Over the course of a few days, his breathing steadied, but his skin had purple dots all over it, and it was yellow, really yellow, caused by elevated bilirubin uh, in his blood. You might know this as having jaundice. Now, bilirubin is the junk that's supposed to be cleaned out of our blood, and a normal bilirubin count is supposed to be something like 0.00000001. I mean, essentially, it should be zero. And sometimes a baby is born with an elevated bilirubin, and their jaundice number is a one or a two, maybe a more dangerous three or a four. Well, Tyler's bilirubin number was well over three or four and kept going up. The liver is what cleans the garbage out of the blood, and Tyler's liver wasn't working, and so his jaundice number kept climbing. The doctors assured us that as long as the number didn't go into double digits, we'd be okay. And then it went into double digits. So then they explained, well, there's two parts to bilirubin. There's direct and indirect. And as long as direct doesn't go into double digits, you'll be okay. And the direct went into double digits. Now his skin wasn't yellow. It was green. I mean, seriously, green. <laughs> Sometimes he would have this crunched up look on his face and he looked like the Grinch who stole Christmas. And I would joke, it's not easy being green. Billy Rubin climbed to well over 20. And that's when I asked the doctors, how high can it go? <laughs> they said, we're asking that same question. 
They checked the databases. They called around other hospitals and experts in the field trying to see what the deal was. And they said they couldn't find any record of anybody ever having a number so high. And it kept going up all the way to 30.5. Tyler had a liver biopsy, underwent liver surgery. Consultation was sought from leading medical experts all around the nation. Nothing helped. We thought for sure that Tyler would die within weeks. He didn't. Tyler was sent home from the neonatal intensive care unit after two months, and we're convinced to this day that he was sent home to die. He had eight specialists needing to see him every week. Most of them needed to see him two, three times a week, and so every single day we took him to doctor's appointments, two or three appointments a day. It was on 12 different medications. We used to have to feed him by using a syringe to shoot the food down the back of his throat because he was too weak to suck and swallow. He'd be back in the hospital in about a month. He had biliary atresia surgery and bilateral hernia repair and hypospadia surgery and strabismus surgery and exploratory procedures and gastrointestinal intervention for reflux, esophagitis and thrush and other issues, both serious and relatively minor. And because of his condition, he needed to eat every two hours. And so we'd spend an hour getting his food medicines prepared, and then we'd get him into his stomach with that syringe, and then we'd spend the next hour cleaning up his projectile vomit. All day. Every day. Tyler was sick. Everyone thought for sure he'd die within months. But he didn't. And the biggest threat to his life I haven't even mentioned yet. Tyler had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and pulmonary stenosis. His arteries were way too narrow and in the wall of his heart muscle was way too thick. Four times thicker than it should have been. He weighed five pounds and his heart was as thick as that of a 40-year-old man. We'd gotten to know our cardiologist pretty well at this point. We were seeing him pretty much daily. (laughs) So we had a relationship, and we asked him, be straight with us, for our sanity, we needed an honest prognosis. And he hesitated, as doctors do when they're asked that sort of a question, but then he said there was no medical reason why Tyler was alive even at that moment, and he would likely not see his first birthday, and there was just no way he would see his second He should have died in less than two years, and he didn't. Why? God had a plan and a purpose for this boy born sick. Fast forward a number of years, we have a 10-year-old boy who still couldn't eat solid foods. Everything had to be put through the blender first, pureed. He had recently learned to feed himself with a spoon, so that was good. We prayed in the name of Jesus Christ that And not just us, it was a dedicated circle of prayer warriors praying with us for years. And when Tyler was 13, he finally was able to eat non-blenderized food for the first time. We threw a party. We celebrated this answer to prayer with all of our prayer warrior friends. We invited them all over with an official invitation. We had an invitation blown up to poster size, and everybody who attended the party signed it. You come to our house, it is one of the first things you will see. It hangs in our foyer as a constant reminder that God answers prayer. So the lung problem went away. 
resolving itself on its own, so the doctors told us. The liver problem with the impossibly high bilirubin count went away in spite of the failed efforts of the medical community. Many of his physical and developmental issues uh, were successfully addressed by highly trained professionals, doctors and therapists, uh, with uh, unreal effort, love, and patience from my wife, Dina, sustained by God's grace. And now, after 13 years, he could eat real food. Amazing answers to prayer. But there was still this ticking time bomb, his heart. The hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the pulmonary stenosis were not getting better. He saw specialists in Orlando, New York, Syracuse, Buffalo, Baltimore, D.C., the best in the world at what they do, and there was nothing to be done. Every few months, he needed to go see his local cardiologist, beautiful Muslim man, Dr. Hassan Abdallah. And every visit, Dina would say, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. And he'd smile and encourage. And then Tyler started having these episodes where he couldn't get his breath, and he would come into a room at night, panicked, turning gray. Dina would hold him and rock him and would pump his arms and legs, trying to get blood flow and take him into the steaming shower, anything to try to help. And Dr. Abdallah then started asking to see Tyler every month. And every visit, Dina would say, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. Then the doctor sought second and third opinions, sending Tyler to medical facilities throughout the region. And suddenly, Dr. Abdallah stopped accepting payment for Tyler's visits. We couldn't understand why. We found out later, it's because Tyler was dying, and the doctor didn't have the heart to tell us. His heart was breaking for us as Tyler's heart, after years of struggle, was finally ready to just call it quits. That's why he couldn't breathe sometimes. That's why he turned gray. He was in heart failure. There was nothing to be done. All of the doctors had exhausted all of the options that their training and technology gave them. And yet Dina kept trudging Tyler to doctor visit after doctor visit. And after seeing so many echocardiograms and EKGs, she became an expert in reading them herself. And it was time for another visit to Dr. Abdallah. And as usual, Dina greeted him by saying, we're praying for a miracle, Dr. Abdallah. And as usual, Dr. Abdallah politely smiled, got to work. And as he performed the echocardiogram, Dina watched as usual, but somehow it didn't seem as usual. The echo looked different to Dina. And Dr. Abdallah noticed too. He kept looking and he adjusted his view and he checked where he'd already checked. Then he went back again. He kept performing the procedure and taking much longer than usual. And Dina began to think she understood why. And the doctor turned to Dina and said, do you see that? And Dina said, yeah, look to her. Like the image of Tyler's heart was normal. Dr. Abdallah removed his glasses and wiped a tear from his cheek. And he looked Dina straight in the eyes and he said, who do you pray to? She answered, Jesus. We pray to Jesus. 
And Dr. Abdallah said, well, your Jesus has healed your son. And they embraced and they enjoyed a long cry together and they rejoiced together at what Jesus had done. One of them having just been reminded of who Jesus is and the other one having just been introduced to who Jesus is. And what a beautiful story. The Skinner's story, but in the end, an American story. How we really live, folks. Who we are, how beautiful we are, and my goodness, the heart we have. This is Our American Stories. Just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you've come to know, we tell stories about everything here on this show, from history to the arts, sports, and your stories, too. That's the hour in Our American Stories, and we'd love to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter while you're there, and we'll hit you with our best four or five stories every week. And you're listening to the theme song to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the highly successful television sitcom that ran from 1990 to 1996 and is on perpetually on cable. People always say sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you make it to the top. Things were no different for rapper-turned-actor Will Smith, and he almost missed his opportunity to be a part of a groundbreaking show. The story we're about to listen to is all about how Will Smith's life got flipped and turned upside down. We'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. Here's Will Smith to tell us how he became the star of the hit TV show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Before I was getting in trouble with Uncle Phil, I was in trouble with Uncle Sam. Me and Jeff had come out with our smash hit, Parents Just Don't Understand, we made a bunch of money, we won a Grammy, album was triple platinum. I had motorcycles and cars. I called the Gucci store in Atlanta, and I was like, Hey, will y'all close it down if I bring my friends? And I'm smiling, but that's stupid. We released our next album, and it was like a flop. It was a tragedy. It went like double plastic. I had spent most of my money, like all of it. I spent all my money, and I didn't forget but I didn't pay the IRS. In my mind, I mean, I wasn't like trying to avoid paying taxes. I was just like, oh damn, they need their money. The IRS took all, took all of that stuff. So I was like, broke, broke, broke. Being famous and broke is a shitty combination. Cause you're still famous and people recognize you, but they recognize you while you sitting next to them on the bus. And the stuff they ask you to sign on a bus, you know, like, oh, can you sign my baby? That's a Sharpie. I, I probably shouldn't just write on the baby with that. Oh, you too big to sign my baby. Well, no, nah, I mean, you know, so I signed it. So I was like laying around and my girlfriend was like, dude, we're not doing this. Like, you're not just going to be laying around this house all day. You're going to go do something. And I was like, what? What I'm supposed to do? Go where people is is doing it. Where people doing it? 
Go to the Arsenio Hall Show. Just go stand around at the Arsenio Hall Show. Yes. That's stupid. Pick it up. So I went to the Arsenio Hall Show and I met a dude named Benny Medina. Benny Medina is the real life Fresh Prince of Bel Air, except he actually went from Watts to Beverly Hills. Same basic concept, way shorter distance. I meet Benny and he pitches me the idea for this show and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not an actor. I'm like, cool. And he says, hey, you know, I want you to meet Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is producing with me. So I find myself at Quincy's and there's actors and artists and celebrities and politicians, like everybody's at Quincy's house. It's like the whiz without the costume. So Benny walks me in and introduced me to Quincy. He's like, hey Q, what's up, man? He said, like, hey man, you know, I saw your music videos. I love, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Tell me your rap name again. They call me the Fresh Prince. All right, good. That's what we're gonna call the show. And he handed me a screenplay for a failed Morris Day pilot. Like, I don't have the time. So I need you to do this. I need you to go ahead, take a few minutes, take 10 minutes, study the script, and I'm gonna clear all the stuff out the living room, and we're gonna have everybody sit down in the living room. We're gonna do an audition. He had movers that could reset his furniture. I was like, this dude is real. So it goes out, tells everybody, come on, come on, come on. And I was like, hey Q, hold up, man, hold up. I'm not ready to do no audition. And he's like, oh, all right, all right. Uh, well, what you need? Tell me what you need. Just set the meeting for a week and I could do it. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC, is out there. I'll get him to schedule for next week. And then you know what's gonna happen? Something gonna come up and then he's gonna have to reschedule. Oh yeah, yeah, so three, so three weeks from now, Q, we can do it three weeks from now. I said, yeah, 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 three weeks from now be good. Or you could take 10 minutes right now and you can change your life forever. I was like, yes, give me 10 minutes. I said yes, and I let it rip. And I got to the end, and everybody's clapping. Quincy looks at Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC. Did you like it? And Brandon said, yeah, yeah, I liked it, Quincy. He says, no, did you like it? And he's like, yeah, I liked it. He's like, good, you're his lawyer. Draw me up something right now. Damn, Quincy ordering other people's lawyers around. <laughs> like, that's his lawyer, Quincy, leave that man alone. And Quincy turned to me, and he was like, hey, Will, you got a lawyer? Quincy, I'm broke. If I had a lawyer taking 5%, he'd owe me money right now. He was like, all right, and he turned to his assistant. He was like, get Will a lawyer. Quincy had been drinking. You know, it's probably obvious from the story, but he had been tasting. He, he had wet his beak a little bit that night. Yeah, so the lawyers go out in the limo and they're drawing up the first deal for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Quincy is like popping up at the window. No paralysis, do analysis. No paralysis, do analysis. I'm like, how did he make Thriller like this? So we got the lawyers draw up something. Ken Hertz looked it over for me, Brandon Tartikoff, and we took a picture and we signed the, the, the basic deal for the Fresh Prince. And three months later, we were shooting the pilot. And that's the story of how I became the Prince of Bel-Air. So the moral of the story is, Always say yes, and I guess, listen to your girlfriend. <laughs>And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's an entrepreneur's story right there. And that's what we do here. I mean, the arts show business, the business part. 
By the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, type in Sly Stallone, because you hear the same story from Stallone at that key moment in his life when he had this script. And if you remember, Stallone kept, he, well, they wanted to buy the script from him. And they kept saying 50000 then 100000 then 200000 And Stallone's like, man, that was more money than I was ever going to see in my whole life. But remember what he said. He said, my goodness, if that's a big hit and I'm not in it, I'm going to jump off a bridge. And so he just said, no, I'm not selling it. I got to be in the movie. And that business decision he made changed his life. The decision Will Smith made changed his. And thank goodness he had a great advocate, a great businessman. Quincy Jones wasn't just a musician, folks. And Benny Medina, well, he's the real thing. And look up his name. What a story there. We should do that one, too. This is Lee Habib, Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Here it is, a groove slightly transformed Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance? This is Our American Stories, and it's that time of year. We love bringing you the very best commencement speeches we can find over the years. And we'll dredge up some of the worst, too, because there are some really terrible ones. Most are completely unmemorable. We've all been there. But some are really dazzling. We're going to bring you some of them. Steve Jobs's was amazing at Stanford. So many good ones. Denzel Washington's, my favorite, from the University of Pennsylvania. But here it's Ginny Rometty talking at Northwestern University. And if you don't know who Ginny is, she's the first woman to head IBM. And in 2015, she returned to where she earned her degree in computer science and electrical engineering. Rometty's alma mater presented her with an honorary doctorate, and she told the graduating students three stories, starting first with a deeply personal one. So this first story, it comes from my childhood. Like many, I grew up in a middle-class family not far from here in a suburb of Chicago. I am the oldest, I have two sisters, I have a brother. And like many of our time, time for school, we went to Sears for our school clothes. And I can remember one, just one family vacation, and it was a camp out. Now don't feel sorry for us. That was a simple and a very happy life. But then, One day, all that changed. I was a teenager, and my father left my mother. In fact, he left us all. Now my mother, who had never worked a day in her life outside of our home, she found herself with four children, but soon, no money, no home, no food. So while she never, ever complained, she never spoke of what happened, I must say my brothers and sisters, we watched and we learned. And she had to find a way to keep a roof over our head. But she was so proud, she did what she had to do, which is what we all do. She found a way to go back to school in the day to get a degree, and then she worked at night so we could quickly get by on our own. My mother was so determined to never let anyone define her as a failure, a single mother, or anything worse, a victim. So through her actions, she taught us all Never let anyone define you. Only you define who you are. 
My mom did get that associate degree and she retired after 25 years from a hospital near Chicago here. And my brother and two sisters, they share among themselves five degrees from Dartmouth, Georgia Tech, and Northwestern. And thank goodness for this doctorate because I was losing that race on number of degrees. Okay, so I, this is the biggest thing today now. I'm back at the hop. You're not a victim, I think is what she's saying. And by the way, it's personal for me, my wife's mom. The men left. She was married three times, didn't support the kids. All four kids went to college. The mom worked continually, put herself through college, advanced herself. You're not defined by the things that happened to you, and you can overcome them. Next, Jenny shared a story from early in her career. I had worked for a senior executive, and he decided to go to a new job. He came in to me one day, and he said, wonderful, you are the candidate to replace me. So I was called in the office, and with great excitement, told I'd be offered this job. Well, I can remember my reaction. It wasn't the same great excitement. I looked at him and I said, it's too early. If I'm not ready, just give me a few more years and I'd be ready for this. I need to go home and I need to go sleep on it. Well, that evening, my husband, now up there, well, he's up in the stands. I don't mean to hurt too far. <laughs> my husband of 35 years, Oh, boy. <laughs> he says I never mention him, and then I do, and I mess it up, you know? Uh, he sat and listened patiently to my story, like he always does. And then he looked at me, and he said one thing. He said, do you think a man would have answered the question that way? He said, I know you. In six months, you'll be ready for something else. And you know what? He was right. And I went in the next day, and I took that job. Growth and comfort never coexist. I want you to close your eyes, if they're not already, and ask yourself, when have you learned the most? I guarantee it's when you felt at risk. So when you feel anxious, maybe tomorrow, when you leave and start a new job, I guarantee that that is a good sign. What great words. Growth and comfort never coexist. And her final story, the third, and again, we're listening to IBM's Ginny Rometty at Northwestern University in 2015, she looked to the future of her company and our world. It's early 2011. IBM Research has built a computing system, something that the world has never seen. It's called Watson. Now, Watson is named after T.J. Watson, IBM's founder. And I am sitting not in a lab. I am in a TV studio. I'm in a TV studio, and I'm watching Watson play Jeopardy against the two most successful human champions there have ever been. Watson talks converses with Alex Trebek. Watson understands puns, metaphors, clues, buzzes, wagers, wins. It is an amazing moment. And one more time on the way home, I call my husband and I say, and I remember it to this day, I think I just saw history. Well, I will come back to that story of Watson in a second. I believe years from now, historians will look back and they will look at this as a dawn of a new era. It will be one made possible by two things. First, it's the development of a new era of computing, something we call cognitive. The world has only known two eras of computing. The first, it was a tabulating era. They were machines that counted, things that did the national census. This is what did the social security system. The second era, programmable systems. It's everything you know to this day. If this do that, 
they do exactly what we tell them to do. But now, you and we are entering a third era. These are systems that you don't program. They learn. They analyze more data than you'll ever remember or handle. And they understand natural language, like I speak today. More importantly, like humans, these systems reason. Some people call this artificial intelligence, AI. The reality is this technology will enhance our thinking. And it will not be a world of man versus machine. It will be a world of man plus machine. In fact, I predict in our near future, every important decision mankind makes will be informed by a cognitive system like Watson. And our lives in the world will actually be better off for it. Now, while this is really hard to appreciate now, I think this dawn means you sit at a very unique point in history. But note, there's one more thing. The age you're facing is made possible by one other, a new natural resource. You recognize it around you. It is just the sheer amount of data. Every day, 500 million DVDs worth of data is created. This is why I think of it as a natural resource and it will be the phenomena of our time. Which now just brings me back to Watson. Since that day in Jeopardy, 2011, Watson's come a long way. Finance, retail, insurance, but most of all, hard at work in healthcare. And in fact, we've had the honor of helping renowned institutions like Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Cancer Center, MD Anderson, the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, the New York Genome Center, and the list goes on. Doctors will struggle with that same exponential increase in information. By 2020 medical information, it will double every 72 days. But with the era we're about to enter, collaborators like Watson, ability to digest all that information, then form hypotheses about your diagnosis, your treatment, our doctors will have a chance. IBM has been privileged to pay some of the greatest roles in history whether it was in fact to help do that census, to help land the man on the moon. But make no mistake, Watson and healthcare will be our modern day moonshot. And we will do our part to change the face of healthcare. These are the moments we work for. Work on something that matters, have a purpose. And you are all high achievers. You wanted to get here to this day, you got here. And you will have many more goals in the years ahead. But do not confuse a goal with purpose. You may find that purpose in business or public service academia, you choose. But I hope, and my hope for you, is that you leave today with a purpose to change the world in some way. And there you have it, Ginny Rometty's speech at Northwestern class of 2015. And go to Our American Network to hear all that we do and listen to all of our stories and We'll show you how to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for that, too. And to sign up for our newsletter, where we can keep you posted on what we're doing and share with you the very best that we do each week. Again, this is Our American Stories. Commencement month. We'll be playing these speeches all month long. The very best and a few of the worst here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's a great music story. And we're calling this one The Billion Dollar Quintet. Here's Greg Hengler with more. The Traveling Wilburys had a short history, but a long past. The creation of the rock group was a fortunate accident. Nicknamed the Billion Dollar Quintet, the five musical legends, three of whom were in their 40s, had gathered to assist a former Beatle in writing and recording what was intended as a throwaway B-side track. Tom Petty at age 38, whose career was at its peak, was by far the youngest member of the group. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus, in America too. Roy Orbison, at 52, who was called the greatest singer in the world by Elvis, was the oldest. Here's Roy singing You Got It, the hit he co-wrote with future fellow Wilburys, Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. And then there was former Beatle, George Harrison. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. In 1963, a young Bob Dylan would ask future bandmate Roy Orbison to record the song he wrote, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Orbison would later regret his decision to reject this Dylan masterpiece. I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child, I am told. I give her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. Finally, there's probably the least known member of the traveling Wilburys but no less talented, singer-songwriter and record super-producer Jeff Lynne. Lynne co-founded the Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO, a rock band inspired by the Beatles' complex orchestral sound of the late 60s. Between 1972 and 1986, Jeff Lynne's ELO put more singles in the top 40 charts than any other band in the world. George Harrison's career was on fire in the late 1980s. His comeback album, Cloud Nine, was certified platinum in the U.S., thanks to the production work of Jeff Lynne. Then, in a pivotal moment in rock history, Warner Brothers told Harrison he needed to record a B-side track for his single, This Is Love. On the evening before the recording session, Harrison dined at a French restaurant in Los Angeles with Jeff Lynne, who had brought along Roy Orbison. With the three legends sitting together at one table, Harrison asked Orbison and Lynne to help him record the B-side. They agreed. For the sake of convenience, Lynne suggested they record the track at Bob Dylan's garage studio. 
Harrison telephoned Dylan, who agreed to the idea. Needing a guitar that he had left with Tom Petty, Harrison called and was pleasantly surprised Hello? that Petty also wanted to attend. Drums, please! The recording session took place on April 5th, 1988. After dining on some barbecued chicken in Dylan's backyard garden, the five musicians worked out the song's lyrics. Thankfully for us, George Harrison understood that history was being made, and so he took out his personal video recorder and began shooting. Does it say record in here, George? Is it supposed to say record in the viewfinder? Yeah, all you see at the top. Oh yeah, there it goes. Here's George Harrison. The thing about the Wilburys for me is if we'd have tried to plan that, or if anybody had tried to, you know, say, let's form this band and get these people in it, it would never happen. It's impossible. My guitar was at Tom Petty's house, so Tom, Jeff picked me up, we went over to Bob's, and I got the first line, just said, Bean beat up, battered round. Bean beat up and battered round. And then, wham, they just kept coming with all these lines. <laughs> and uh, there was Bob was saying, oh, what's it called, what's it about? And I finally saw behind his door this big box with a sticker on it saying Handle with Kerr. I said, Handle with Kerr? He said, oh yeah, good. I liked the song and the way it had turned out with all these people on it so much. So I just carried it around in my pocket for ages, thinking, well, what can I do with this thing? And the only thing to do I could think of was do another nine, make an album. Here's Tom Petty. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a real good idea, because it had really been such magic doing the first track. Petty recalled how the group's lineup was finalized. We all jumped in a car to go see Roy play in Anaheim. All four of us ran into Roy's dressing room and said, we want you to be in our band, Roy. He said, that would be great. Harrison made the final proposal official by dropping to his knees and formally asking Orbison to join the band. The five men soon celebrated with a band meeting at Denny's on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Dylan proposed they call the band Roy and the Boys, but they settled on the quirky name, The Traveling Wilburys. All five men are rhythm guitarists, but there are no excessive solos, and the boys did a fantastic job at sharing the spotlight. Harrison did emerge as the chief Wilbury, and when the band returned to record the rest of their album, his video recorder was on again to capture the memories, starting with Tom Petty's arrival on day one. All in a day's work for a Wilburn. And we had like nine or ten days that we knew we could get Bob for. And uh, everybody else was relatively free. So we just said, well, let's do it. We'll just write a tune a day and do it that way. It was very exciting. We were in Dave Stewart's house. And it was a nice environment because you could kind of sit outside. It was warm and the doors were always open. So we set up in his kitchen. It wasn't soundproof or anything. And we just put like five chairs around the kitchen and put the microphones up. And, uh, and that's it. So all them guitar parts, you know, all them acoustic guitars are just in this kitchen. Here's Roy Orbison. We did from music. That's what it was all about. There wasn't a lot of deciding of what to do. 
not a lot of time spent planning out anything. So we just uh, wrote the best songs that we could write and uh, sang them as best we could. There it's Barbara and I got out of the car. Oh, no, she was long and tall. She was oh, long short long. and fat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was dressed to kill. Yeah, that's good. She was out to give me a thrill. She was over the hill. She was dressed to kill. She was over the hill. Here's Jeff Lynn. Just sitting around in a circle, like five of us just drumming acoustic guitars and coming up with a song in, in like a couple of hours that was almost ready to record, you know, and then recording it like on the evening. It's pretty sort of unbelievable stuff. I looked at her eyes. They were full of surprise. Here's Tom Petty recording the song Last Night as the band members look on. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the billion-dollar quintet, here on Our American Stories. American stories and to sign up for all that we do go to ouramericannetwork.org and uh, hit our email list and we'll get to you and let you know what we're doing here on the show and now let's return to the billion dollar quintet the story of the traveling Wilburys. Sometimes we'd sing the same song, you know, just to see who sounded good or if this key fits somebody. That was a lot of the fun of and, and George would kind of audition us, which could be really intimidating, you know, because, like, you know, Roy Orbison had sing the song, and then they'd send you out to sing it, you know. And it was like, well, damn, that's really intimidating. Tweeter and the Monkey Man was recorded in only two takes and was notable for its many references to Bruce Springsteen's songs. Here's Harrison discussing the Dylan recording as we also hear Dylan getting feedback. Tweet and the Monkey Man was like really Tom, Petty and uh, Bob, well Jeff and I were there too but we were just sitting around in the kitchen and he for some reason was talking about all this stuff which didn't make much sense to me. You know it was that Americana kind of stuff and we got a tape cassette and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying. It was just fantastic watching him do it because he had like one take warming himself up and on take two he sang that tweet and the monkey man right through and that's it let's get them near the souvenir stand yeah. 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 
George Harrison and Roy Orbison first met in May 1963 when the Beatles were scheduled as the opening act for Orbison. What Orbison did not know at the time was that the Fab Four's second single, Please Please Me, had been written by John Lennon in an attempt to emulate Orbison. Ringo Starr would later admit Roy Orbison was the only act that the Beatles didn't want to follow. Here's Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne discussing Roy Orbison as Roy records the Traveling Wilburys tune, Not Alone Anymore. If you're just sitting on the sofa working on a song and Roy's singing, even when he sang soft, it's such a tone, such a sound, you know, such a, a gift, really. We used to always tell him, Roy, you must be the, the best singer in the world. And he'd say, yeah. Jeff Lynn's production skills always makes a great track even better. hated the notion of the supergroup, which were popular in the 1970s. I never meant to be so bad to you. They wanted to soften the notion that they fit into this category. After all, most so-called supergroups don't exactly live up to the term. Michael Palin, one of the members of the comedy group Monty Python, was hired by Harrison to write the band's fictional biography. Palin chronicled the short story of five half-brothers who had one father, but five different mothers. Consequently, out of sheer self-amusement, all five members of the group decided to use aliases. Their real names did not appear anywhere on the album or cover. Here's Harrison and Lynn discussing the bittersweet track, Congratulations. The only Wilbury song Dylan has performed in concert. One of the most amazing things ever about the Wilburys was this poles apart thing of Roy and Bob Dylan. 
That's what I thought was wonderful, the best singer and the best lyricist, and both in the same group. End of the Line became the album's second single. Orbison stated at the time, I've been rediscovered by young kids who had never heard of me before the Wilburys. Pretty woman walking down the street. But just four days before they shot the music video for End of the Line, and just three weeks after the album's release, Roy Orbison suffered a fatal heart attack. Although he had complained of chest pains over the previous month, mentioning the discomfort to his close friend Johnny Cash, Orbison did not take the symptoms seriously. Here's Tom Petty. Roy went out on top, and, and I'm sure he knew that. The last conversation I had with him was a couple of days before he died on the phone, and he was just so thrilled that the Wilburys had gone platinum, and he was just, isn't it great? It's great. We all felt that Roy was a real special part of the group, and it was just our ace in the hole to have that voice come in. And he was so nice, you know, and it was uh, so painful when he died. The video for End of the Line was shot inside a vintage passenger car on a moving train. Maybe somewhere down the road away. During Orbison's vocal solos, the camera focused on a framed portrait of the singer, which was perched near a weathered rocking chair that held a resting, upright guitar. Orbison became the first musician since Elvis in 1977 to land two posthumous albums in the top five. And the Traveling Wilburys album handled with care would also win accolades such as a Grammy and were ranked number two by Rolling Stone in the category of Best New American Band, right behind Guns N' Roses. Unfortunately, the band never lived up to the traveling aspect of their name. They never toured, not one live appearance. Here's Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison. The whole experience was just some of the best days of my life, really. She wrote a long letter. And I think it probably was for us all. One short piece of paper. The thing I guess would be hardest for people to understand is what good friends we were. It really had very little to do with combining a bunch of famous people. It was a bunch of friends that just happened to be really good at making music. None of this would have happened without him. It was George's band. It was always George's band. And it was a dream he'd had for a long time. From my point of view, I just tried to preserve our relationship. I worked so hard to make sure that, you know, all the guys who were in that band and, and consequently on record and film, their friendship wasn't abused. Just to preserve our friendship, that was the underlying contribution, I think, what I was trying to do. The traveling Wilburys remain a cherished part of rock lore. The gathering of five rock legends offered a lesson. 
some supergroups really can succeed, make great music and sell lots of records. They would record just two albums and release 25 songs. In its list of the best albums of the 1980s, Rolling Stone placed the Traveling Wilburys' first album at number 70. Petty's solo effort, Full Moon Fever, which was the best-selling album of his career, and an album also produced by Jeff Lynne, came in at 92. What Remains of the Traveling Wilburys is a mystique of unfulfilled possibilities, much like a rock band that does not come out for an encore, even as the fans remain standing on their feet, clapping wildly and cheering at the top of their lungs. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And 